Welcome back, Warriors. Quainine de Luisi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples all over Turtle Island from sovereign Indigenous nations talk about Indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. And there's many free ways to support this podcast. You can like it, you can give it five stars on your favorite podcast app, or share it on your social media. Teachers can even share it in their classrooms. And on today's podcast, I have an award-winning journalist who, get this, she owns her own news outlet. And no, I'm not talking about some big corporate millionaire who owns a biased, conservative newspaper conglomerate. I'm talking about a legit independent news outlet that is doing incredible work. So stay tuned because we all need independent media. Welcome back to a new season of the Warrior Life Podcast and happy Mi'kmaq History Month. But if you'll remember from our last podcast with the amazing Jarvis Gugu, we decided that the name of Mi'kmaq History Month should really be Mi'kmaq History and Present Day Month. That sounds a lot better because we're totally still here, despite everything that's been done to try to wipe us off the face of the earth. And today's guest is someone who is literally so perfect for Mi'kmaq history and present day month. She's an award-winning journalist and owner-editor of her own news outlet called Gugugues News. She has been engaged in media for well over 30 years, which if you do the math, it means she must have started doing this work when she was about two years old. Basically, here's the deal with this amazing woman. If there is something important happening in Mi'kma'ki, Maureen Gugu will be there. Welcome to the podcast, Maureen. Thank you for having me here, Pam. That was quite the intro. <laughs> well, you are. You're awesome. I just admire you so much. I've been wanting to get you on here forever, but it's perfect that it's Mi'kmaq History Month. It is indeed. Um so thank you for bringing me here for this particular edition during this month. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so I literally have a thousand questions for you. But before we get started, protocol is that you have time to introduce yourself in your language or where you're from or however you would like to do it. Okay. Um, well, I will let you know that my name, again, Maureen Gugu. I am from the Sebaganagadi First Nation. Um which is the second largest Mi'kmaq community in Nova Scotia. And I have been working in journalism, um, not since I was two, but since I was 18 years old. Um, I actually got my start working as a summer student um, with the Mi'kmaq News. And that really, that, that summer experience um, covering news um, for the, for back then was a monthly newspaper really paved the way for me for my entire journalism career. I mean, it's because of Micmac News that I 
wound up um, applying for and getting a very rare um, internship with CBC Radio in Halifax. Um, it 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 paved the way for me to go to journalism school at what was then called Ryerson University, which is now <laughs> Toronto Metropolitan University. But that's where I got my first journalism degree. Um, I got my second journalism degree at Columbia uh University Graduate School of Journalism in New York City. I got my master's there. Wow. And I have worked um, in mainstream media. I've worked at CBC Radio in locations such as Halifax, uh, Toronto, um, Northern Saskatchewan, and Sydney K. Breton. I've worked at the Chronicle Herald newspaper um, in the Halifax newsroom, the Dark Myth Bureau, and the Truro Bureau. And for six and a half, the first six and a half years of um, APTN being on the air, I actually opened and ran the Halifax News Bureau, where I was the Halifax correspondent slash video journalist, where I got to cover Indigenous news on a full-time basis in the Atlantic region for the network. And basically, that pretty much was sort of the precursor for me to start my own news website, which is Google West News. That is so awesome. Like, it's incredible. You know, you think about people who work in, you know, so-called mainstream media and they, you know, they put all their focus and all of their attention there and they try to represent. And you, you literally are bringing in all of this mainstream media plus APTN, plus your own personal education and experience to your own Google Quest News. And I just think it's awesome. And here's the website for anyone who's watching the video. You can go there. There's just so much on there. But my question obviously is, if you were working in mainstream media and then APTN, what made you decide to start your own news outlet? Oh boy, that's a really long story. And it actually goes back to my days of Micmac News. Um, when I was working at Micmac News, for the, I worked two summers there. I worked the summer of 87 and the summer of 88. And, you know, I, you know, it gave me the idea where I, I wanted, I decided I wanted to be a journalist. And the idea at that time, back in the late 80s, was to cover news. Um, well, not too much cover news, but basically to get my education, get a journalism degree, come back to Micmac News to work as a reporter and eventually become the editor of Micmac News. That was my goal. I have always wanted to work in Indigenous media. I wanted to tell stories about um, Indigenous people in this region. Um, but during that time, what happened was um, the funding that uh, Micmac News had um, was basically cut and they didn't have enough advertising and subscribers to maintain um, the full operation. So within a year of that funding being discontinued, the newspaper actually folded. And so that kind of left me with the, well, what do I do now? Well, working in media meant working in mainstream media. So that's where I put my attention. And that's, you know, I, I did a one-year internship at CBC. I actually took a year off of my undergrad studies at St. Mary's University, where I was studying political science to do the internship. And that was my introduction into um, mainstream media and wanting to tell those stories. Um, so that's where I put my effort in, um, you know, and I did. I worked at CBC. I worked at the Chronicle Herald. 
and and in both those media outlets, there was always this initial um, enthusiasm for me to cover Indigenous stories. Um, I was just young. I was just, um, you know, learning how to how to cover news, learning how to write news stories. I was, you know, in between around that time, I was getting my um, my journalism degree, and you know, it was encouraging at first, but it always started going towards the the attitude of so what else can you do what other news stories can you do you know do you just want to cover indigenous stories and it kind of in it that I found that a bit frustrating um because I really did want to cover news I did want to represent I I felt that there was a lot of stories in in our communities that needed to be told but I was constantly being met with this resistance from you know non-indigenous editors and producers telling me what's interesting in my communities. And they found some of the stories I was pitching was, were not interesting to a wider mainstream audience. And it just got frustrating. And they mm -hmm. kind of, you know, like I, I actually recall one, one situation when I, you know, when I was working in print media where I had the, you know, the editor tell me that, you know, if I continued on pitching and writing indigenous news stories, I was never going to be considered for promotion. I would never be considered wow. for prestigious news beats such as city yeah. hall or provincial legislature. And that, you know, I was only hurting my career, you know, <laughs> and, and during that, 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 that exchange, you know, not once did that editor ask me what I wanted to do. What were my ambitions? Um, you know, my ambitions were to tell indigenous stories. <laughs> so basically I left, I left media for about, you know, almost two years. Wow. And then, and then during that time, when, and I wound up working communications with the Union of Nova Scotia Indians. And during that time was actually when the Donald Marshall decision came down about, mm -hmm. um, you know, Mi'kmaq fishing rights. And I was the point person for a lot of media um, to find interviews. And it really made me miss reporting a lot. Mm -hmm. And right at that same time that, you know, this, you know, the Marshall case was um, exploding and Mi'kmaq fishers in Escanobadich were putting lobster traps in, you know, in the, in the waters there in northern New Brunswick. Um, the Aboriginal People's Television came on the air and I decided to check out their website and they were advertising for positions to form a newsroom. Um, so... I saw a position there for a Halifax correspondent slash video journalist. So I applied and I got the job. I was flown to Winnipeg and I got to meet my new colleagues who were all indigenous from across the country. And for the next two months, we all met and worked towards developing the first news show um, dedicated to indigenous news. And it was, and it aired on, APTN, I believe, in April of 2000. So I was part of that original team. And, you know, for me, it just, you know, it was the first time I actually, you know, it was part of my job to cover Indigenous news in Atlantic Canada. It's exactly what I wanted to do. And I had a blast. You know, I got to cover got to cover I got to cover the, the stories that were going on in Burnt Church. I, I got to cover, I got to, you know, travel to our communities wow. with the, with the camera and, 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 you know, and do news stories. I got to, 
you know, I got to pitch all these stories that I wanted to to do for a very long time. And it was just wonderful. But the thing is, working in television, uh, being a VJ, being a VJ means you are uh, not just a reporter, but you're also your own camera person. <laughs> oh. So I had to drive to these communities, um, you know, not just interview people, but run the camera. And oh then my I gosh. go back to the bureau edit the stories and then oh, no. Winnipeg. So, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a, it's a lot of work. And I felt like at the time I needed a little bit of a break. So I, yeah. how I chose my break was to get a master's degree in journalism at Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little master's degree in journalism. Exactly. Yeah, that's a nice relaxing break. <laughs> and the thing is when I applied to Columbia, my idea, you know, I, I just decided to see if I could get in. Not only did I get in, but they gave me a full tuition scholarship to attend. What? Yeah. And at that time, that this was in 2006. At that time, the tuition was uh, almost 39,000 US. Oh my gosh. So I could not say no. (laughs) And that was long before reconciliation. I mean, that's, it's a testament to, to the work that you've done to get yourself there. That's awesome. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know, so I couldn't say no, you know, I I, I I, I said I had to go, I had to find a way to get to get to New York and to attend. And, and the thing is when I applied to Columbia at this point in my career, I had worked in print Micmac news, Chronicle Herald. Mm -hmm. I'd worked in broadcast. I worked at CBC radio. I worked at the Aboriginal people's television network. So I worked in radio and television. The only skill I didn't have at that time was working online. And I know at that time, news was trending towards more digital. So I decided to, um, I chose my concentration as new media. And I'm really glad I did because it was when I was in that particular stream at Columbia is where I got the idea to, um, to start my own news website. Uh, that program really exposed me to a number of people who were actually doing that. What people were talking about back, what's going on now in the the changing media landscape in Canada, people were actually talking about that in the States, in New York, back in 2006, 2007. Um, what was going on was that the, the, the advertising revenue was going down for a lot of legacy media. So they were doing a lot of cutbacks. And which meant that there were news deserts in local communities. And what they were finding was what happened was that as legacy media outlets were pulling away from smaller communities, um, people like myself, a journalist who just wanted to cover local news were actually starting their own websites or starting their own blogs and starting to do that kind of coverage and actually starting to make money from that. And I attended quite a few panels while I was at Columbia that gave me that idea. And I think the first, the first time I got that idea was, was at one of these panels. And I remember afterwards, I went back to, to my apartment. I decided I Googled um, anything that might show that, that there was somebody in the Atlantic region covering indigenous news on a website and, nobody was doing it. So that's where I got the idea that I wanted to start my own website. And it kind of goes back full circle to 
what I wanted to do initially with Micmac News. But the thing is, in order to get the job that I've always wanted, which is to run my own, to run a, a new, an Indigenous news website, I actually had to create that job myself. Well, why wouldn't you? I mean, for someone who considers going to Columbia and doing a master's as a break, of course you would start your own news outlet online. But I think the timing is good too, because it, you know, when people are doing blogs, you know, and doing political analysis or, you know, providing, you know, information and then blogs are turning into like YouTube videos or opt-eds or, you know, podcasts, like it's everything is kind of moving online. It's easier access. You can do open access. Um, th that's incredible. But let me ask, how on earth can you do that? Uh, do, are you just 100% self-funded? Because I know just as a, you know, amateur indie podcaster, I have to pay for all the subscriptions, all the equipment myself. I have to do all the recording, editing, posting, sharing, like, that takes a lot of time, but for you to have like a whole news outlet, like your website is super impressive. How on earth do you do that? Wow. <laughs> a lot of work and a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, it, it's funny because the, the idea to start my own news website and then actually starting it, there, there there's a quite a bit of time gap there yeah. because, I, <laughs> because I actually, when I graduated from Columbia in 2007, um, you know, I actually chose to leave my job at APTN, um, but I still needed money and I needed to figure out a way of how to do this. So I, what, what I wound up doing for quite a few years was actually working contracts, communications contracts, other, you know, working, you know, in digital media for CBC at the time and, and trying to save enough money so I could actually do this. And um, what, I, what I found was that I would do the contracts pay the bills. And then I have to turn around and take another contract. It was really, it was just this ongoing cycle. So what I wound up doing was taking a longer contract, doing communications work, um, and saving some money. And, um, you know, so I, so I did that for about two years. So when I was ready to, to finally launch my website, um, you know, I had to make sure that I had enough money in the bank account to basically, to support us because we knew it wasn't going to be easy. Um, but at the same time, I, I think it was about maybe a year before um, we officially launched Google West news. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Canada land podcast. Um, and I, one of the ways that Jesse Brown um, funds Canada land is through crowdfunding through Patreon and, and I looked at other crowdfunding campaigns before, um, you know, the one-off ones, but I, what I really needed was something that was more sustaining. Yeah. So when I launched Google Quest News back in 2015, I launched a Patreon campaign as well mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. asked people to support me. And, you know, people started to support and it was, it was, just, it, I wouldn't say it was completely sustaining. Um, you know, so we really had to rely a lot on our savings. So we were started to burn through our savings. Um, and a year after we launched the website in, in 2016, we actually decided to start selling advertising space. So from the, from then on our, the way we fund ourselves is kind of, um, you know, Patreon and selling some advertising and it, 
for some reason, it always seemed like, um, you know, it was just enough to pay the bills for us. And, you know, and it, it was really a rough go. It's just myself and my husband, who is the photographer for the website. Um, as, it's just the two of us working on the website, um, making sure we had enough gas money to go to communities to cover stories. Um, you know, wow. making sure that we're paying for the web hosting service for the yeah. website. So, you know, and uh, money was tight there for a while. Um, but it wasn't until about two years ago when uh, Sebag and Agatee launched their moderate livelihood fishery. Mm-hmm. And what happened was, um, you know, I went there for the launch and I covered the story, you know. Um, but then everything started happening on the Solnierville Wharf. And I really wanted to be there to cover it. But we just... You know, it was either spend the gas money and and go down to cover it or pay rent. That was my dilemma at the time. And um, so it's I a just, real dilemma, though. It, like, it, that's, it, that's real. It, it is real. So I put a note on my Facebook wall saying, I can't cover this. But if you guys tag me, I will try to run a live blog on the website to make sure oh. people were getting information. Well, once people realized that I didn't have enough money to get down there, all of a sudden, my Patreon campaign started going up and up and up and um, people were just offering to, 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 to give us money to help us get down there, which they did. I mean, which was great. We were able, you know, once, you know, there was a few people who contacted me directly and just said, can we just send you an e-transfer? <laughs> and I said, sure. So, yeah. so next thing you know, next morning we were driving down from, you know, but where I live in Milford, Nova Scotia, we were driving from Milford down to Salnierville to cover what was going on there. And by the end of that month, we had reached our first goal for Patreon. Wow. So since then, that's what's been sustaining us. And, we, you know, we've been able to, um, you know, just to, to basically pay the bills, pay for all those subscriptions that you talk about, because I do, I do need, you mm-hmm. know, I, you know, I had I had to upgrade my web hosting package because people were coming to the website so much it crashed. So I had to upgrade it. <laughs> and, and we're still selling some advertising from people. So basically, that's how we fund ourselves, you know, through people who support the journalism on Patreon. And also, if there's a business, um, you know, we're always encouraging business that if you support reconciliation with Indigenous people, you know, support small indigenous business like our website so we've been able to you know at least once a month find one advertiser who wants to buy some advertising we would like to have more because yeah if we made more my next goal is to actually have a freelance budget so i can hire people to to do stories for us and eventually (laughs) the next goal would be to turn those freelancers into staff people like i i actually want want to run a fully functioning organization with reporters right now it's just me and my husband and you know i want to keep posting a lot of stories but there's there's a lot of stories where i need to do some research and i have to step back so i can't file as much as i want but at Mm -hmm. the same time i realize i do need to keep people informed so you know it, it would be nice if we had a bit more money so I can actually hire a freelancer to cover a story while I work on a more in-depth story, such as what I'm working on now, which is the um, the fishermen who were charged two years ago are working their way through the courts now, where they're having <laughs> to defend themselves and, and use the moderate livelihood treaty right to do that. And it hasn't been easy for them. You know, so I've yeah. been, you know, 
for the past uh, two, three months, been really doing a deep dive into this and, and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on and what do my readers need to know about the situation, you know, so, yeah. so that, that's, that takes a lot of time. And it's a legit struggle, you know, like you're not just doing a blog about, I don't know, how to make cookies and that's not putting down any cookie blogs. I'm just saying like, it's, it's research, it's time, it's effort, it's relationships in the communities. It's struggle. There's conflict. It's, it's sometimes in crisis mode. I mean, and we are from the same nation that, you know, we want to talk about and you, especially on the ground. So you wear that, you absorb that, you know, the good, the bad and the otherwise. And, and I don't know that everybody really understands what goes into that. You might see like, you know, there's a, an article and you can read it in five minutes. And it's like, well, well why do, doesn't he or she or some other people just do more videos, do more articles, do whatever, but they don't often realize there might only be one person behind them, you know, on the, on the keyboard. Like, honestly, the Google Quest News, I just assumed that you had staff that were helping you. I thought you were like the head honcho, you know, you were the owner and the editor and you were the face and you were out there doing stuff. But I just assumed that you had staff. And I should never assume that because, you know, that's the difference. And you talk about reconciliation governments and businesses should be lining up to support all of these independent indigenous journalists because we're the only ones on the ground covering it from our voices with our voices and getting at stuff that other people aren't going to cover you know and I've seen you cover things and ask hard questions that the media would never cover you know, so it's it's important. And, you know, when if anybody's watching this on YouTube after the podcast plays, I've been posting, you know, where you can access Google Quest News or follow Maureen or her news on Twitter and her Patreon page. I mean, basically, if you just type in Google Quest for anything, you're going to find it. You'll find her Patreon and her social. But it's really that it's really that important that people support because you're literally doing it all. I'm, I'm astounded. I honestly thought you would have had at least a couple staff. <laughs> no, I, I wish I had a couple of staff and, you know, and I feel really bad because when I look at my bank account and, you know, <laughs> I want to cover, you know, I want to pay somebody, the most I can pay them is just reimbursing them for, for mileage and food. And mm -hmm. I know that that's really crappy. So I don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want to be able to, support other indigenous writers and journalists and, and compensate them properly because I know what that's like. I know what it's like trying to, to do what you love and tell these stories, but also yeah. you, you need to put a roof over your head and food on the table, you know? And I just, you know, I, I don't want to lowball other journalists, yeah. you know? So, you know, my goal is to, is to, to, to get a, get a freelance fund so I can actually start recruiting some freelancers. And then so everyone, everyone who's listening or watching, support Maureen and her dream, her legit dream, which benefits all of Mi'kma'ki, and but it benefits like the treaty partners in Mi'kma'ki, and it benefits First Nations all across the country to know what's happening. 
I mean, that's really re reconciliation in action when you're supporting someone's dream, which is your dream is really just to serve other people. You know, some people's dream is to, I don't know, be the queen of England or something. You know, it's very individual. Yeah. You're like, but I just want to pay people. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and so that's, that's really important. And I also want you to support her dream because I want to write op-eds for her. I want to, I want to participate. I want to see if she'll hire me to do things too, because I, I know how hard it is. I mean, I literally had to watch a thousand YouTube videos just to learn how to podcast, how to edit, how to, you know, change things, which apps to use. I'm not a journalist. I don't have any of this stuff, but we put an awful lot more work into the things we do than people actually see. And so, yeah. and the other thing I just, I want to ask you about too is, you know, you are covering Mi'kma'ki. You are covering our people and our communities, the traumatic issues, the political issues, sometimes conflict. Do you ever find it a challenge as a Mi'kmaq journalist to be covering Mi'kmaq issues, especially when you wade into the political front, you know, because there's always controversies. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's, it is it is difficult. But the thing is, I've been working as a journalist since I was 18 years old. Mm -hmm. Basically, when people see me come on the scene, they know I'm a journalist. <laughs> and, and that's how they treat me. I mean, that's the, my whole adult life. That's how people treat me. And you know, at the beginning, it was really tough for me to cover political issues because when you're Mi'kmaq, you know, you're told to respect your elders and mm -hmm. not to uh, not to challenge them. But mm -hmm. that kind of goes against what you're supposed to be as a journalist, especially when you're covering political issues and 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 covering accountability issues. It means you have to ask the tough questions. And you know, for me, like I said at the beginning, it was really tough. But I remember a couple of chiefs in particular, I mean, they've passed away now. That would be uh, Chief uh, Reg Maloney for Sebeganegadi and Millbrook Chief Lawrence Paul. Um, I had to ask them really tough questions a couple of, and I had to ask them really on, on camera because uh, I was doing this for APTN. And afterwards, you know, I, I, you know, because I had to put them on the spot, you know, I, afterwards I kind of felt bad. So I was trying to, I wouldn't say we came out and apologized, but I was being very apologetic to them for, you know, asking them such tough questions. And both of them in, in different, in their different ways, both told me that, you know, we know that this is a job you're doing. We know you're just doing your job and tomorrow is a new day is what they both told me. And that really wow. made me feel better about asking the tough questions, wow. you know, you know, that, that you know, they, you know, and, and I have been carrying that with me all the time whenever I have to sit down and do a tough interview with a politician who yeah. is indigenous, you know, you know, they recognize that this is just the job I'm doing and that tomorrow, you know, it's, it's another issue that everyone's going to be dealing with. So yeah. they, just, they take it as if this is their job as well. We're just doing our jobs. And right. that made me, that, that, that has made me feel better about, you know, challenging people when I do the interviews, asking the tough questions. I'm not afraid to do that anymore. It gave me that confidence to continue on. Oh, that's good. You know, it reminds me of, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoon. You're probably uh, as old as I am, maybe, or um, where, you know, you've got the shepherd dog 
and the coyote yes. and they're all friends and they're hanging out, but they punch the clock to go one to try to kill the sheep, but one to try to protect. And they're like arch enemies. But when they clock out, they're like, Hey Fred, let's go walk down the road together. or something." <laughs> That's exactly how it is. Yeah. And, you know, and, and like I said, it took me a long time to get there, but once I got there, you know, I, it, it just doesn't bother me anymore. You know, I think that's just a political thing altogether. So uh, you probably know I do a lot of political analysis and critique of legislation and things like that. So most First Nation politicians, they don't get offended when I criticize what they do or don't do. But there's always a handful who then you become their arch enemy and they take it personally and they they, they forget that, you know, it's it's politics or it's law or whatever. And so has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had anyone be like, ooh, I'm cranky at Maureen Gugu? Um, yeah, I've, I think I've done a couple of stories that that, that, that haven't made people happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I mean, it's, you know, when people like and, and I've had people not return my phone calls. Uh, not want me to not want me to interview them. But the thing is, I mean, the stories that I'm working on are so broad that I can just find somebody else. Yeah, somebody else will do the interview. Uh, so yes. if, if one person doesn't want to talk to me, that's fine. I'll just go to the next person on my list. You know, so, <laughs> so and and eventually after a while they get over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you yeah, don't become an, you don't become an award winning journalist if you're not at least persistent and ethical and credible and professional in what you do. Yes. So <laughs> let's hear about that. What is all this award-winning journalist? Tell us about this award. Oh, oh boy. This, this award, it actually might be a bit controversial. It's, mm. um, I, I, this was actually when I was working at uh, CBC. Uh, I was the morning news editor in CBC Cape Breton. And at that time, I, it, this actually came about from some story Sorry, I was working at, at APTN. It was about the, the Métis people in Nova Scotia asserting rights. I mean, they were dealing with the whole fisheries issues and they wanted to be recognized as a people here. And that's really controversial. So, um, so, so I, I did a, a few stories about that. Uh, it was a group in Yarmouth. But it got me wondering about you know, how many other um, people out there are asserting a Métis identity here? And it's really controversial. Yes. So I decided to examine that. And um, I did a documentary for CBC Radio um, nice. uh, for Maritime. At the time, I think it was Maritime Magazine. And the documentary, I, I actually called it Indian Enough. <laughs> Yeah. Oh yes. So it, it was about a ten. It was about a ten minute documentary, and I submitted it to the. Um, at the time, I'm, actually, I'm looking it up here. The Radio Television um, News Directors Association. They have it's a national mm. organization, but they also have regional. So I submitted that for the regional award for it was called the Adrian Clarkson Diversity Award. Yeah. Yeah. For uh, 2008. And I actually won in that category for that documentary. Yay! Yay! So. Yeah. And I wanted to do, I wanted to win more awards, but the thing is, um, <laughs> this is kind of funny. Um, I've been wanting to submit my stories from Google West News for other awards, 
but we've just never had enough money for the industry. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, and, that, isn't that silly? Like it's a vicious circle for good or for bad. So people with staff and money and resources can get their staff to put all yeah. the documents together for awards, keep an eye out on awards, constantly apply where if you don't, you can't. Yeah. And then like one award gets another award and it's just a vicious circle. So yeah. another reason why we need to support Maureen's dream to have staff so she can get the recognition she deserves. I mean, you're my absolute favorite, bar none. Cause I, I like how you are just honest and direct, but fair. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, we never have to worry that you're going to portray us in a racist way, like the way sometimes mainstream media does, you know, it's not so great. Um, and, and of that, you know, like one of the things that I know, cause we've had a, a chat about this a couple of times, mm -hmm. but I want to talk a little bit about some of the stories you cover. Now, obviously, you told us about covering what was happening in Sebaganagadi with those racist fishermen and setting things on fire and destroying traps and just being horrible. But right now, there's some things going on, and you just alluded to it. There is a situation where our some of our Mi'kmaq fishers are having their stuff confiscated or they're being charged or they're pleading guilty and paying huge fines for simply doing what we have a sovereign inherent right to do, which is fish on our unceded territory. And we also have treaty rights to do that. So how important of an issue is this for Mi'kma'ki? Like, and, and why are you, I mean, I know behind the scenes, you are putting so much work into monitoring and researching this. Why is this one so important to you? I think it's because it's important to everybody. I mean, everybody wants, I mean, the, the one common thing that I find my readers are really interested in is about their Aboriginal and treaty rights and what's being done to challenge that. Um, it's the thing that gets the most hits on my website. Sometimes my coverage actually crashes my website because of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, like two years ago when Sebag Negadi launched their moderate livelihood fishery and the conflict happened um, in St. Mary's Bay, um, a lot of fishermen around that time were getting charged. And I see mainstream media go and down to Salnierville every year since then to cover the same conflict. But for me... I was really curious to know what was happening um, when these fishermen and fisherwomen um, had their gear seized, had their, um, had their catch seized, maybe had their vehicle seized. And, you know, nobody really followed up on what was happening to them. So about a year ago, I actually started doing a deep dive into the courts to find out how many people were being charged or being charged and what was happening to them through the courts. So I, I started um, monitoring a lot of the cases and what I've been finding, and I'm trying to, you know, right now I'm, I'm trying to reflect all of my findings in ongoing stories on my website. But what's been going on is that these individuals are being charged with illegal fishing. A lot of them want to defend themselves using um, their treaty right to earn a living through, you know, or to earn a moderate livelihood through the fishery. They're, they want to use that 
some cases, a handful of cases, they're able to assert that in the courts. But in a lot of cases, they're unable to do that. And it's a lot, a lot of it has to do with their representation. Um, they, they're, these fishermen who are out on the waters, they're not rich. They, you know, they don't have, they don't live on much. This is the only way that they can earn a living by, by exercising their treaty right. But what happens is that when they get charged and have their gear seized, they're, you know, if they want to fish some more, they actually have to go buy new gear, which is not, this not a cheap industry. You know, traps cost a lot, you know, a boat costs a lot, um, you know, crates cost a lot and they're getting all of that confiscated. So the only thing that they can do is just um, deal with the charges that they have. You know, some of them get representation. Some of them can't afford that. Um, they apply to legal aid. Legal aid is not covering fishery offenses. So if they want to hire a lawyer, they have to do it through their own pocket, but they don't. So a lot of them wind up pleading guilty. Um, that just happened about a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in Digby court, an individual um, pleaded guilty and got charged eight thousand oh dollars. And has about and the individual also had their their truck seats. So they're wow. you know they're using that as part of part of payment for that. Then there's other cases where they actually do have a lawyer um, who is you know basically I I, I don't want to say they're working pro bono because they aren't, but they're not charging them that month that much. And, you know, just because of this one particular lawyer who feels like it's necessary to challenge um, the federal government on these charges, you know, they're working their way through the courts. And what I find really interesting in those cases is that the federal crown is ready to argue that these fishermen, these Mi'kmaq fishermen, have to prove that, you know, where they got charged, and in one case, it would be the wharf near Weymouth, just outside of Digby. Mm -hmm. They would have to prove that there was a historical Mi'kmaq community there, um, that, you know, that that community still exists, and that those particular fishermen are um, historically connected to this local Mi'kmaq community, and that they're still members of this local Mi'kmaq community. (laughs) So, the thing is, when you look at Weymouth, there is, you know, the nearest Big Mouth community in that area would be Bear River First Nation, you know, and it's not really local. You still have to drive inland for about 20, 30 minutes to get to that community. Um, but this is what the Crown is, is, is going to be arguing that these fishermen, and not only that, not just that, is that that lobster is um, a historically that that was historically traded before the the 1760-61 treaties were signed. So, yeah. So basically, these are all the this is what the federal crown is willing to argue. And yeah. you know, and I and I think for me as I'm going through a lot of these court documents and finding this, I think my readers have some are would A would find this interesting and B <laughs> have something to say about it yes so that's sort of where i'm at right now with the stories i'm working on it's alarming yeah and and you think of course any other mainstream news outlet 
is going to, you know, be following all the court documents, be looking at people who are being charged. Like, no, it takes a, a news outlet like yours because we're from the Mi'kmaq Nation. We care about one another and we look at the impacts, not just the law, but take away someone's vehicle, their fishing gear. Um, they can't even fish for food or ceremonial purposes. So when the federal government does that, they're effectively denying you all of your fishing rights. Plus, you have to pay. So never mind a moderate livelihood. Uh, you can't even get any livelihood or provide food. And I don't think that's what the treaties envisioned. And I certainly don't think that's what any of the Supreme Court of Canada cases envision. Now, we know that's what the feds want. And this story sounds a lot to me like the feds are trying to get a third kick at the can and relitigate our rights over and over and over again until they get the answer they want, until they get the limits that they want. And thank goodness for the work that you're doing, because... Had I not talked to you, I wouldn't even have known about these charges going through. I wouldn't even have known about how they're trying to relitigate our rights. And that's quite alarming because, as you know, we made submissions to the United Nations on this. And the United Nations told Canada to stop uh, preventing us from uh, having our treaty rights. And, and so I think you're right. I mean, I know you're right. Mi'kmaq people are going to care an awful lot about this. They're probably going to be surprised, maybe not surprised to hear this. They're going to be wondering. I think the first question on their mind is going to be, hey, what are we doing about this? Right? Because whenever you hear that, oh, the feds are attacking us again, the first question is naturally, okay, who's doing something about this? Like, what are the political leaders doing? What are the lawyers doing? What are the uh, organizations doing? What are the chief and council doing? What is every, like, literally, what is, what are you doing to protect our rights? And so your your newspaper is literally what's going to keep people informed because that's not just, hey, the weather tomorrow is going to be 10 degrees and sunny. It's tomorrow you could have your rights, your constitutionally protected rights limited or deleted altogether. And you might not even have known that it was coming were it not for your news organization. And what you're talking about now is exactly what I'm talking about, that I, that I know my readers would find this interesting and would have something to say about it. I think your reaction kind of illustrates that. <laughs> yes. but, um, but it also comes back to that whole full circle of Micmac news. You know, when I, growing up and, um, you know, in Indian Brook First Nation, um, one of the things that I remember that was always a constant was having the Micmac news on the kitchen table. Yes. And getting at that every month and going through it and, and reading the news and reading what was happening. And the thing is, what I loved about Micmac news then, it was just very, you know, it, it was very high to me. It was very hyper local to indigenous news. Yeah. Um, it was it was wasn't anything. This was back in like the 70s when I was a kid and the 80s when I was a teenager. Yep. Is that these stories I never saw in the Chronicle Herald newspaper. We got the Herald newspaper delivered to our home. It was something I never saw on CTV news or CBC news. And we watched those newscasts. You know, the Micmac news was its own um, news source that was aimed for people like me. Mm -hmm. And 
what I've always wanted to do with my career in covering Indigenous news is that I want to cover the type of stories that people would sit down at the kitchen table and talk about, you know, and, and, you know, like I said, it was just that symbolic having the Micmac news on the kitchen table. You know, it really did become a, you know, a talking point, you know, mm-hmm. what was going on. And I, and I, and I want my website to be just like that. Yes. I want, I want to cover the stories that indigenous people find interesting and want to share. And I think that that's why I put so much effort in covering mm-hmm. what's going on with the moderate livelihood treaty, right? Is because I think everybody cares about that and yeah. everybody has something to say and people should know what is the latest happening on that front. You know, two years ago, yes, there was more conflict on the waters, but that conflict is moving from the waters back into the courtroom. Yes. People need to know that. And mm. what I've been finding is that, you know, mainstream media are still interested in covering the conflict on the water, but they're completely missing out on that whole argument moving back into the courtroom. And I think that that's where, to me, that's where I think if you're going to be covering the moderate livelihood treaty, right, you should be paying attention to what's going on in the courtrooms. And, you know, I, I think the only other media outlet that that is, trying to do that would be APTN. But mm-hmm. then again, you know, APTN is a national, yeah. you know, it's a national news organization. They're feeding stories into a national newscast. So there's only so much that that reporter can do as well. Exactly. You know, and, and that person is being told what to do from another editor. Yeah. yeah. I don't have that burden. <laughs> I decide what I want to cover. And that's the best thing about my website. Yes. I get to choose what I want to cover and I'm choosing to cover this. And with the hits that I'm getting on my website tells me I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. W- without a question, you're doing the right thing. And it's, I love listening to you because it reminds me of the old days. Yeah. I remember the Micmac news and in New Brunswick, we also had the Malamec news, you know, the Ma- covering yeah. Maliseed and Mi'kmaq people. And it's like, <laughs> You could get everything like, oh, they're proposing changes to the Constitution, like something big. And it can also be, you know, Jane Sacobi celebrated her 90th birthday and she's sharing the, the, the you know, Willis Sequoia language and like the good stuff, what people like nationally might consider like little stuff um just everything or indian summer games are going to be from this date to this date and big cove or as um elsa book is covering it and just all of that cool here's our news stuff yeah and and you know like i've i've told this story on on um other podcasts before but ever since i was a little girl because i was so involved in politics because of my older brothers and sisters i used to watch them I wanted to have what I called PAM news. So my brother got me a tape recorder when I was in grade four. And I used to just narrate and be a reporter and be a anchor about everything that was happening. Oh, I was at the land claim meeting today and I saw Joe punch Bob. And you know what I mean? Like I was my own little news. And I always thought, you know, I think part of that is probably from things like the Mi'kmaq or Micmac news and Malamic news and just the the coolness 
of being connected with everyone because way back then we didn't have social media, right? So that was one way of actually knowing, hey, so-and-so got an award in hockey. Isn't that awesome? Mm. And and the thing is, one thing I I have realized about about covering news, Indigenous news here, is that one one of my concerns before I launched my website was that, you know, everyone's connected on social media, especially on Facebook. Everybody, you know, Get up on everybody else's business, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's you know, in Mi'kmaq we call that nail egg, right? <laughs> Everyone's so nail egg on uh, oh on God. Facebook. So I was always wondering if people are sharing their information, would they even care about having, you know, a website that's given them news if they're just sharing uh-huh. their own personal news with each other about what's happening? But the one thing I did find that I found, one thing I noticed, is that people still crave to have something put into perspective for them. Yes. Somebody, somebody to point out, what does it all mean? You know, why should I care? You know, they, they, they wanted to put it into context for them. And that's what I find with um, the news stories that they share is that they're still craving that whole, you know, what does it all mean? I need this mm-hmm. in context. I need to know why I care about this. They need somebody, they want somebody to put that into perspective. And that's what I find when I do post a story and they do share it is that they they are finding somebody putting that into perspective for them. So even though everybody's all oversharing on (laughs) all the time, they're still craving that perspective, that context. And I find that really encouraging for the future of Indigenous news. Oh my gosh, yes, because the Facebook news, let's just say it's a little more on the interpersonal side and yes. a little less on the what's happening in the law. And one of the benefits of Google Quest News is there's no relationship status. Uh, you're not going to hear about someone uh, broke up with someone or someone cheated on someone. You're just going to get the hard hitting news. And you can yeah. always go to Facebook if you want all of the relationship status stuff. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, (laughs) morning, what can people do? This might be an obvious uh, answer, but, you know, as as we're rounding out this session, I I always ask people, what can we do to A, support you personally on your dream or your endeavors? And B, what can people do to support the Mi'kmaq Nation? Oh, boy. Um, well, I'll answer the, the last part first. Is yep. support the Big Mount Nation to me is to to be an ally, to yes. be an ally for the, the the issues that are important to Mi'kmaq people, um, to to be an ally uh, against racism, mm-hmm. to be an ally for treaty rights, to be an ally for culture and for language, and yes. to be supportive of all that. To me, that that's how you can support the Big Mount Nation is be an ally. Um, you know, those are the people I gravitate towards, you know, yeah. if, you're, if you're an ally to, you know, to indigenous issues, you know, you know, you're, you're somebody I'm going to sit down and listen to and talk to, um, and have a conversation and educate, you know, in terms of, pers- of, of supporting Google West news. Yes. I think that's obvious. I mean, I do have a Patreon campaign. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of levels on how you can pay. I mean, it is a monthly contribution. Mm-hmm. You know, any you can contribute anywhere from, you know, one dollar to twenty dollars a month. It all depends on 
how much you want to support. But I can tell you when you support, you know, Google Quest News through Patreon, your monthly contributions goes towards um, supporting the website, supporting um, what's needed to keep the website going. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it goes towards, you know, you know, for me, it goes towards paying the bills so I can, yeah. um, so I can concentrate on news stories. It goes towards um, a travel budget. So my husband and I can pay for gas to go to the communities. Yeah. It goes towards paying for accommodations because if we go on the road, that requires um, yeah. you know, the road more than one day, you, you need a hotel. That's exactly where the money's going. Um, so if you're an individual and you, you know, you support indigenous news, this is where your money is. It's, it's going. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, that, so for me is like go to our Patreon site. And, yeah. and if you like the stories that you see on Google West news, consider becoming a monthly patron of, of the site. If you're a business <laughs> watching this, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. I, you know, there's another way of supporting us and that's by an advertising space. We only offer like two spaces on our website, a banner and a sidebar. We're not intrusive. Um, people, you know, for readers can still read it, but they can also see, you know, your advertising, mm -hmm. you know, if, and if you're a business, especially a big business, like a bank where you are always, you know, telling people that you support reconciliation. Yeah, yeah, people. yeah. Consider buying an ad for, you know, for big business, it may be a drop in the bucket, but for us, it means a lot. It yeah. means we're able to take that money and reinvest into the website. It means we can actually, you know, you know, can actually, um, you know, build on a freelance budget, which is what I've been trying to work towards. Yes. Um, you know, it, it, it helps us with um, upgrading our equipment so we can tell stories in a visual format, not just in, in, in creating content um, written word, but we can actually get into video and stuff like that. I mean, all the stuff that we, all the money we make for the website, it's reinvested in back oh, into yeah. the website. So like I said, if you're a business out there, consider buying an ad. It may be a little bit of a money in your budget, but for us, it, it, it means so much to us. I mean, it just, it's even just one ad. Um, if you buy one ad for even two weeks, that, that, that means, you know, for us, that's like, we can go to an ex, you know, go on a couple of more road trips a month. That's what oh. that means for us. And it's peanuts for big business, for example. So, you know, beyond just buying an ad, they could simply make like big one-time donations. I mean, all those big businesses could literally make the Maureen dream come true in a heartbeat, you know, but it, th and that's also what allyship is about. It's not just being sympathetic or making yourself aware or, you know, supporting in the sense of like moral support. It's also taking action. And sometimes, yes, resources are action, you know, helping to fund lawyers for land defenders, you know, helping to fund new independent news outlets, things like that. And I always call on our listeners to support all Native creators by liking their work, commenting on the work, sharing the work, you know, leaving ratings, uh, using it in your classrooms, like using it everywhere, because as 
I don't have to tell you, all the social media algorithms get like really excited when people are sharing and commenting and then it gets shared to other people that would not necessarily get it. So those are some of even the free ways that people can help Indigenous content creators like Maureen, who's got her own news outlet, which I just think is so cool. And, you know, she's not living in a mansion either <laughs> with like 10 Ferraris. <laughs> she's literally on the road with her bologna sandwiches trying to get to the next hot issue that's happening. So yeah, that sounds like us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Maureen, it has been so awesome to actually get to talk to you. I know I just only met you recently in person and I just, I could have talked to you all day. And the same with here. I think that's why I do this podcast. It's not even a podcast. I just get to talk to the most amazing people. And, you know, it's like having tea on the res or something like that. Oh, just yeah. Like, asking them all these nosebag questions like, oh, so tell me about your background. Um, thank you for doing this because I know you are busy and you are trying to run your own news outlet. I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate everything that you do all the Mi'kmaq people that you support. Um, that's why I had to have you for Mi'kmaq History and Present Month because you are a mover and a shaker and you're just, you're out there protecting us in ways that we don't even know half the time. So for me personally, thank you so much for what you do. Well, thank you for inviting me to this. I really, um, like I said, we, we just met in person uh, recently. <laughs> And I've, I've always uh, I enjoyed reading your commentary online whenever I see it. So I feel really honored that, that you've invited me to be part of your podcast. Oh, that's awesome. See, that's how we just support each other. So we just got to keep it all going with all the allies supporting here, there and everywhere. Okay. Thank you to all the listeners on the Warrior Life podcast and all of the viewers who might be watching and listening or reading the closed captioning on YouTube for this Warrior Life podcast. Thank you for all the ways in which you support us. Thank you for supporting all the Indigenous content creators. Thank you for always responding to every single one of my guests' calls to action. That's exactly what we need. Just follow whatever they're asking you to do and do it and we will, we will get to the place that we need to be. So until next time, Keep, keep living a warrior life. Well, I'll yeah.